who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello, and welcome back to I Must Break this podcast, the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. I'm your host, Sean, and on today's special interview episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with renowned artist and production designer, William Stout. But before we get to the conversation, I wanted to remind you all to please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews, especially those five-star reviews. Those always help. Also, speaking of subscribing, it is also my pleasure to announce that the show can now be found on an additional feed. Uh, This particular podcast is now a part of a network aptly named the Last of the Action Heroes Podcast Network. Consider it your one-stop shop for other like-minded shows that examine the careers and films of fellow action stars, such as Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Steven Seagal, and there's even one for James Bond. So if you're already subscribing here, please continue to do so, but I encourage everyone to also consider checking out the other feed, where you can listen to this podcast as well as other similar shows. Also, I want to throw it out there regarding the Facebook page for the show, I Must Break This Podcast. Here you can stay up to date on the show, the career of Mr. Dolph Lundgren, and other news regarding action cinema in general. So if you're not already following the page, please feel free to like it, share it, and continue being a fan and helping spread the word. And the last thing I will throw out there before we get to the conversation, um, if you'd like to get in contact with me with ideas, suggestions, or thoughts on the show in general, you can take a look at the official webpage for the show, which is I Must Break This Podcast. WordPress.com. Now, on to today's conversation. Uh, recently, I had the immense privilege and honor of speaking with visionary artist William Stout. Stout is a legend in the business with an artistic resume that spans the realms of dinosaurs, comic books, movie posters, album covers, realistic murals, and film design. In terms of film, Stout has had a hand in the production design of quite a few films yet one that has stood the test of time, as well as for me in particular, is 1987's Masters of the Universe. A battle fought in the stars now comes to Earth. Police! Nobody move! Still gonna need some backup. A battle for the power to be masters of the universe. Dolph Lundgren is He-Man. Frank Langella is Skeletor. Let this be our final battle! Masters of the Universe, rated PG. William Stout was brought on board the film to design the movie's sets and colorful costumes. Now, I've gotten to speak with quite a few individuals who've worked on this classic film, 
Yet William Stout and his contributions to the movie really resonate with me, mainly due to the fact that Stout actually conceptualized the character's designs, especially the look of Dolph Lundgren's He-Man. Stout also designed the iconic throne room that sits at center stage of the film, where villainous Skeletor commands most of the film's action. In this conversation, Stout and I chat his illustration background, his love of drawing dinosaurs, and conceptualizing and then bringing to life his designs for Masters of the Universe. As always, it was the ultimate pleasure chatting with Stout. One thing that was very evident in speaking with him is how he's still very much a great big kid at heart, and he's living the dream of so many. He gets to draw dinosaurs, monsters, and barbarians for a living. Lastly, after the conversation, I will be closing out the episode with a sampling of Bill Conti's classic theme to the Masters of the Universe movie. Surprisingly, considering the number of times we've talked about this film in previous episodes, I shamelessly have yet to play the film's theme music. So, now seemed better than ever. In any case, without further ado, here is my conversation with the great William Stout on I Must Break this podcast. Well, yeah, thank you again for uh, for taking the opportunity. I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, of your work and uh, especially of uh, Masters of the Universe, which you and I have spoken about so <laughs> a couple times. So, yeah, thank you for the uh, for the opportunity here. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to do it. That was that was a wonderful experience making that film. Well, and before we get to Masters of the Universe, I, I want to ask you, because you just came back from, uh, well, and actually not just, but you uh, came back from Wonderfest a few weeks ago. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Louisville, Kentucky. It's one of my very favorite shows. It's very uh, family oriented, very intimate. And uh, the it's I go there every year. I do their T-shirt for them each year. And for me, it's like coming back home to family. They're just wonderful folks. Well, and I met you last year at the uh, at the Fan X, like we were talking about, which is in uh, Utah. And I mean, it it's very clear you seem to really enjoy going to these conventions and and mingling with the fans, which I think is uh, which I think is awesome. Well, part of it is is the fact that, like most artists, we work alone in a room, and uh, your your social skills can atrophy if you don't get out there every once in a while. And plus, you don't know if your work is having an effect on people until you do go out and do a show and, and you find uh, and monitor the response that people are having to your work. So it's, I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing conventions. Unfortunately through COVID I had to cancel about 20 of them. Well, actually they were canceled on me. So I'm happy to get back in the saddle again. When you, I'm just curious, when you go to these conventions, you're, career in CV, if you will, has spanned, you know, multiple decades and you've, you know, worked in a variety of, uh, from film to album covers to, you know, paintings and illustrations and everything. When you go to these conventions, is, is it masters of the universe, your work on masters of the universe that you, um, always get asked about, or is it your work with dinosaurs or, you know, monsters? What, uh, what, what, uh, I, I guess are some of the, the most, uh, famous things that, uh, that, that the fans, uh, call you out on. Well, everyone's different. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. When I first started doing shows, people would come up to me and say, hey, I'm a huge fan of your work. And I'd always have to ask, oh, which work are you talking about? And they'd say, oh, the album covers, of course, or the movie posters, or your film design, or your comic books. <laughs> and then uh, around 1993, uh, I came out with uh, three sets of trading cards. 
Each set had 90 different images on it. And it, it was really great because what it did was it united my fan base. The people who bought the cards saw, oh, hey, this guy we know for his album covers, he also did movie posters. He also designed films. He also did comics. He also did CD covers. And so it united my fan base, which was just great because I, I think I'm probably one of the hardest guys in the world to collect because I don't stay on anything for, one, for a long time. Uh, I tell my students the quickest way to get famous is to do the same thing over and over. Uh, but uh, that would bore me to tears. So I don't do that. Uh, instead, I, I bounce all over the place. I, I used to call it the pinball school of career planning. Well, I mean, you know, clearly, uh, you know, just looking at here, because I'm actually uh, flipping through the uh, the sketchbook that I purchased from you. It's a uh, sketchbook number five, uh, I okay. believe, with uh, with uh, the King Kong on the cover. Uh, yeah, the big gorilla on the cover. Um, you know, clearly dinosaurs and the the sword and the sorcery genre i mean this seems to you know to be the real big passions of yours and i have to you know i have to give you major major props because it's really kind of amazing that you were able to make a career out of doing this type of artwork full time i mean i imagine you have to sit back in awe of the fact that you're essentially living every every kid's dream i bet right (laughs) I, I totally feel that way. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. I've got the best job in the world. It's, I mean, being paid to draw for a living, holy cow. And, and especially now at, at this time in my career, I can draw whatever the heck I want. So there, I don't even have a problem with having to draw stuff I hate because I don't do it. <laughs> do you have, I mean, I, I have to ask, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, but I mean, you have to have a favorite dinosaur to draw or a favorite monster to draw. I mean, I'm a, I'm an amateur illustrator myself, uh, but you know, I remember um, even to this day, actually, if I'm going to sit down and just start drawing um, Captain America is usually the, the number one thing that I will, you know, inevitably gravitate to. Um, are, are there any particular monsters or creatures or anything that if you're just going to sit down, you have a favorite? I draw a lot of Tyrannosaurus Rexes. Okay. <laughs> I'm constantly looking for ways to draw them and show them in a way that hasn't been done before, which is really difficult because I've drawn thousands of them. And so, you know, uh, I, I try different camera angles. I try low camera. I, I use a lot of what I learned in film in designing and drawing the dinosaurs. But it's uh, T-Rex is usually my go-to reptile. Well, not reptile, go-to bird. <laughs> So if if you don't mind, I was hoping you might be able to tell me like your, your general story. I mean, cause this is what I think is really fascinating. I mean, how are you able to go from illustrating dinosaurs and magazines and album covers and use that as a, uh, as a springboard or a launch pad into Hollywood? What, what was that, uh, that, that step or that transition like? Well, uh, the very first movie I ever saw, I saw it when I was three years old. This is before we had a television, and it was 1952. It was the re-release of the original 1933 King Kong. It's still my favorite movie of all time. I've seen it probably well over 100 times. Uh, boy, I think it did damage at a genetic level, because ever since seeing that film, I've been nuts about dinosaurs and, and about that movie. Shortly after that, I saw the Rite of Spring sequence from Fantasia, and that was uh, huge in my life. Uh, but I was going to be a doctor. I was a science math major all through school. And uh, my very last year of high school, I very last semester, actually, I changed my major to art. The reason being was uh, for 
my first year of high school, I went to Reseda High School in the San Fernando Valley, and it was a great school. I got a fantastic education there. But then my family moved uh, to a different county, Ventura County, and I started attending Thousand Oaks High School. Well, boy, I was not learning anything there. Most of the teachers were there uh, not to teach kids, but because they, they'd reached that time in their life where they didn't need to teach anymore. And uh, the school used to try to enforce school spirit, and they made uh, attending pep rallies mandatory. Well, I would ditch the pep rallies. And I would go to the library to try to educate myself because I knew I wasn't getting an education at the high school. And they used to give me detention for that. (laughs) So I thought, I was thinking, I was thinking, when I graduate, I'm going to be two years behind everyone else in medical school. So I better have a a good backup and maybe think about pursuing some other career. Well, I I had been drawing all my life and, and loved it. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll change my major to art. So my last semester, I changed my major to art. To my parents' credit, they didn't have a meltdown. And uh, because my family was so poor, I mean, we were really dirt poor. Uh, Because I scored uh, perfect scores on my SAT test, the state of California gave me a full scholarship, four-year scholarship, to any university I wanted to go to. So I picked uh, Cal Arts, California Institute of the Arts, which we used to call it by its old name, the Chouinard Art Institute. And uh, that's where I got my degree. Now, the, the thing that helped with me being a science and math major, that came later when I started having to read scientific papers by paleontologists on dinosaurs. I could read them no problem, unlike most artists who don't have that background. And so that allowed me access to that world and to making my dinosaurs as accurate as possible. Uh, They had a great policy at my art school in the illustration department. And that policy was that if you got any outside work in the real world, you could turn that in in lieu of your homework. Well, my last two years of art school, nearly everything I was turning in was real jobs. So it made the transition from academia to the real world absolutely seamless. It was just fantastic. In fact, uh, my best art teacher I ever had, Hal Kramer, he was the head of the illustration department. Uh, I ended up studying privately with him for about 25 years. So it's never never too late to learn. Well, and I noticed, and I had no idea about this actually, but in looking at uh, in, in, you know your IMDb profile, um, I noticed that one of your first Hollywood gigs was doing storyboard work on First Blood. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the IMDb file has about half of what I've worked on. <laughs> yeah. They really need to be updated. But, uh, yeah, I, my very, very first film was a film I did with the Firesign Theater. This was a four-man comedy group based in L.A. who did record albums that were uh, – they were comedy albums, but they were unusual. They weren't like any other comedy albums in that you could listen to them over and over and catch new stuff each time you listened. They were really densely layered. And I was a huge fan of theirs. Uh, a fellow fan was this comic book uh, dealer named Dave Gibson. And he got permission to reprint a fanzine that the Firesign did for their neighborhood called the Mixville Rocket. And he asked me if I would do the cover. Uh, I jumped at the chance because I love the Firesign so much. So I did the cover. The, the group saw it. And they started having me do all their art. Uh, they decided they would make a film called Everything You Know Is Wrong. They had cut the album first, and then they mimed to the soundtrack. So it was sort of the opposite of what they do in Europe, where they, sh- they shoot and then add, this, add the uh, sound later. 
this we had all the sound recorded initially, and then we shot the visuals to go with it. I, I had I was designing and, and building props and set dressing, and then I was also an extra in the film. But that really didn't lead me into working in motion pictures. It was just sort of a one-off thing. Uh, but then I got, let's see, I was working doing movie posters, uh, which was at that time was probably the best paying job in illustration. And, but I was a big Conan the Barbarian fan. I had read all the Robert E. Howard novels. And a friend of mine, uh, Bob Greenberg, was working on the film as a production assistant. He said, man, you got to come down and see what's being done on this film. I was really intrigued being a big Conan fan, he said, uh, Ron Cobb is our production designer. I said, Ron Cobb? I knew him from being a political cartoonist, certainly not from being a production designer in film. So I was really intrigued to see what this political cartoonist would add to Conan. Well, I was just too busy doing the posters. I couldn't get away. Finally, I got a break in my schedule, but instead of going to the Conan offices, I went to the ABA, that's the American Booksellers Association. It, it was a, an event that used to occur every year, usually in either New York or L.A. That year it happened to be in Los Angeles. And it's every single publisher and every single editor in the entire country all in one room. So it's a fantastic place to bring, for an artist to bring his portfolio and pick up work. You just go booth to booth to booth, and you've got enough work for the rest of the year. Well, when I entered that, the first person I happened to run into by sheer coincidence was Ron Cobb. And he said, Bill, you are my first choice of who I want to work with on Conan in the art department, but I have an agreement with John Milius, the director. He has veto power over anybody I want to bring in. I have veto power over anybody he wants to bring. So he said, would you mind coming in and leaving your portfolio for John to look at? And I thought, well, this might be fun. Learn how to make movies. And so actually the next day I went to the Conan offices and John Milius happened to be there and he looked through my book. Uh, he remembered a story I had done for heavy metal that he really loved. It was a Harlan Ellison story called shattered like a glass goblin quickly flipped through the rest of the book, handed it back to me. And, and John's a sort of a bigger than life kind of guy. And as he approached the doorway, he turned his head over his shoulder and said, hire him. And so I went in to talk to Buzz Feitzens, our line producer, and he told me how much I would be making on Conan. And I nearly fell off the chair laughing because it was about 10% of what I was making in advertising. But I thought, well, it's just for two weeks. It'll be fun to see how movies are made, get a sort of an inside glimpse. What I didn't know is they always offer you two weeks to do your job. They want to find out if you're a jerk or not. If you're not a jerk and you do great work, well, they extend it. If you are a jerk, you're two, once your two weeks is up, uh, you leave and there's no hard feelings. So the two weeks on Conan ended up being two years. And uh, Buzz Feichens was also the line director on First Blood. And so he hired me to storyboard all the action scenes in First Blood. But uh, that first two years, that's what got me into the film business. At, <laughs> and boy, talk about being in the right place at the right time. When I started on Conan, our receptionist was Kathleen Kennedy. And my office was across the hall from Steven Spielberg's office. So Ron Cobb and I would work on Conan during the day and then run across to Steven's office and kick around ideas for Steven's next film, which was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so it was an unbelievable time to get in the film business. And I got in with all the right people. Well, I, you know, I will say right now with regard to the, the art of movie posters, I mean, I miss these days 
wholeheartedly. And it, it's really kind of amazing because, you know, you look at um, the work that you did back in the, the 70s and the 80s, as well as, you know, Drew Struzan. And I feel like movie poster art was, it, it's really kind of, I mean, you still see it with, you know, certain films, but for the most part, most posters nowadays, I guess it's so much easier to just Photoshop some various floating heads and, you know, things of that nature onto a poster. But yeah, the, the, the art of the movie poster that we saw back in the seventies and the eighties. I mean, I can still picture, like you said, Conan the Barbarian and the, the artwork for first blood. I mean, those were all such beautiful, iconic images that sadly we don't see as much anymore. Yeah. I feel incredibly lucky to have worked in the last golden age of movie posters. Uh, Seiniger and Associates run by Tony Seiniger was the uh, art studio that I went to, to, to get almost all of my poster jobs. And it was one of the most exciting places in L.A. You never know what you're going to see. Maybe you, you'd, I'd walk in and I'd see Drew Struzan's latest poster, which was sort of a cross between Alphonse Smuka and J.C. Landecker, or Dan Guzet's poster for Streets of Fire, which looked like, looked like Russian agitprop. I mean, it, it was just spellbinding. It was absolutely incredible. And it paid phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was just really amazing. So I, I feel really lucky to have been a part of that. In fact, to this day, the most famous piece I've ever done is the 1977 poster I did for the animated feature Wizards. That is still yes. everyone's favorite image of mine. Well, okay, so Masters of the Universe. I mean, you and I have spoken about this one, and um, it's really no big secret that this has always been a, a personal favorite of mine. And, I, and I'm saying this wholeheartedly from the, from the bottom of my heart. I honestly think that one of the many aspects about it that help the film stand up and still be so enjoyable is the film's amazing production design. So I guess before we talk about the production design, how did the project come across your desk was it because were you approached because you know you already had experience illustrating the sword and sorcery genre already or how did how are you approached well every january i used to get usually get about five film offers and i'd I'd weigh each one and decide okay which one do i want to do and uh that that year i got on masters was no different except uh i had stopped doing production design uh, I, my first film as, as a production designer, in fact, I should explain what production design is. The production designer is the person who is responsible for everything that you see on the screen except for the performances of the actors. So when I'm a production designer, I'm in charge of all the sets, set design, uh, costume design, special effects, makeups, special effects in general, uh, set decorating, art direction, all, all that stuff. So I had done that for a two years on a Godzilla film that never got made, sadly. And then I was hired as production designer for a film that's become a gigantic cult movie called The Return of the Living Dead. It's a zombie movie. It's very funny and very scary, which is tough to pull off. Uh, it was written by and directed by Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien. And uh, that was a really uh, my trial by fire. It was a very rough, rough film to make. And for a while, I'd stopped doing production design. But then I got hired to do the storyboards for Masters of the Universe. And I enjoy doing storyboards. It's like directing on paper. And the director, Gary Goddard, he and I hit it off right from the start. We had all the same passions and joys and stuff. He was a big Jack Kirby fan. I was a big Jack Kirby fan. I got to ink uh, an issue of The Demon for Jack. And so we were able to speak in a sort of a, a shorthand, actually, 
if I showed uh, Gary some of my designs and he said, can you curvy it up a little bit more? I know exactly what he's talking about. Whereas the production designer on the film when I started, his name was Jeff Kirkland. He was a, a Brit, and he and Gary almost never saw eye to eye. They were butting heads constantly. Now, Gary is one of the best pitchmen in the business. I, I've never seen a, a better salesman than Gary. And I remember one day he was taking all the uh, Mattel brass around to the various departments uh, on Masters of the Universe and, uh, you know, giving him what, what we used to call the dog and pony show. Well, he saved the best for last. He saved the art department for last. And by the time they got to the art department, these Mattel guys, man, they could almost taste this movie. They were so excited. You could see they were – Gary had them incredibly pumped up. And at the finish of his, his spiel, Gary turned to Jeff for reaffirmation. And Jeff kind of looked up slightly from his desk and said, it's not going to be too awful. Well <laughs> – that burst the balloon, and about two weeks later, Jeff left the film. But he recommended that I take over as production designer. And it was weird because I was informed I was the new production designer at 10 a.m. By noon, I was getting congratulatory phone calls from all over the business, even before my family knew. And uh, it just shows you what a small, small world the world of uh, cinema and filmmaking is. Well, and so j just so I can be clear, I mean, because – Looking at the film as the production designer, you were responsible for designing the characters' costumes as well as the Eternian sets, as well as Skeletor's throne room. Is that right? That's correct. And that throne room that was the biggest set Hollywood had seen in about 40 years. Took two sound stages, and I knocked out the wall in between them to build that gigantic set. Once word got out, everybody in the business wanted to see this set. And they all wanted to have their picture taken on the throne to all the power of the universe, of course. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, we had movie stars, directors, producers, every, everybody coming to Laird Studios to see the set. The studio that we shot it at, Laird Studios, uh, used to be uh, Desilu Studios. And before that, it was Selznick Studios. And uh, before that, it was RKO. It was the studio that made King Kong. And so... I felt right at home. Sometimes yeah. if I had a spare moment, I'd, I'd look around and see if I could find any sort of little remnant from Gone with the Wind or, or from King Kong. But, nah, that's, the stuff was all gone. Well, that's one thing, you know, about the film. I mean, kind of like you said with King Kong. I mean, I'll admit, and I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm grown now and everything with, with children of my own. But Masters of the Universe, man, this is a film that uh, was played constantly uh, when I was a little kid. I've since you know, shown it to my children as well. So I would say I've probably seen this film about a hundred times myself as well. But the interesting thing about it, and I have to give you and everyone on set uh, major, major props in conceptualizing this because, okay, look, you know, you have this, uh, you have the world of Eternia that you're trying to establish, but obviously, you know, you're also working with the Canon guys. And so you have a budget that you're, you know, you could say fairly limited with. And so what you guys decided to do, and I, I have to admit, I never really noticed this as a kid, but as an adult, as I watch it, it's, it's really ingenious in a way. So every time the film is in Eternia or anytime the characters go back to Eternia, ostensibly mm -hmm. they're in Skeletor's throne room. And obviously that was a conscious decision on your behalf. I imagine to where you guys said, okay, look, if we don't have the budget to pull off Eternia, then we're going to throw everything we have at this throne room and make it look as 
magnificent as possible. Yeah, that's pretty much right. Uh, I I had help with that from a, a very, very dear friend of mine. His name is Jean Giraud. Uh, the public usually knows him as Mobius. Uh, Mobius happened to be working in Santa Monica at the time. And so I called him in and I said, hey, let's collaborate on redesigning He-Man. Let's c- collaborate on designing this throne room. And we put our heads together and, and came up with, with what you saw. Well, and I imagine that this had to be an exciting opportunity, but also a little intimidating. Okay. I mean, you have, how do you go about in translating this toy line and cartoon onto the big screen and still have it play to a variety of audiences? And you know what I mean? Like look, for example, looking at the uh, characters, uh, the characters costumes, for example, what was your approach in uh, designing these costumes and bringing what was once, you know, these six inches, six inch pieces of plastic that would, you know, be on, you know, on an animated, <laughs> you know what I mean, on the cartoon, on the TV, to the big screen, to where it's still going to be believable. Well, we knew we weren't going to do uh, interchangeable torsos and legs the way the toys had. <laughs> that the public would be so bored so fast. Uh, they really had to be, each character had to be distinctive. And I approach uh, costume design, also set design, from the point of view of uh, that's used by a lot of actors which is for each character, I will write a biography, a little mini history of who they are, where they came from, why they're this way, what their personality is like, uh, what their culture is. And so that helps to inform me and make things more real. I figure I can't expect the audience to believe what's on the screen unless I believe in it. So I have to convince myself that all this stuff is real. Now, as far as Eternia goes, uh, in the original script, about a third of the film took place in Eternia. But there was no way that Canon could afford that. That's why most of it takes place on on Earth, on modern Earth. But uh, those characters, man, that kind of stuff is really fun for me to do. Uh, A lot of what I do for motion pictures is character design. I did the first designs for uh, The Predator, designed the big bug at the end of Men in Black. Uh, Just that that for me is, is it's a fun gig. Plus, it doesn't take very long. The other problem I have with production design is if I agree to production design a film, I'm also agreeing that I'm not going to see my sons for one to two years. Because if I'm doing my job right, I'm working seven days a week, minimum 18 hours a day. The only time I see my family is when they're asleep. And so I have to ask myself, that's a pretty heavy price to pay. Is it worth it? And so for the most part, it's usually not. Plus the other problem that enters into it is I don't care who you are or how good the script is. You never know if the film is going to be successful, it's going to be a good film until it's finished and an audience sees it. The audience is always the missing component to the success of a film. And so I can work on a film for two years, bring my friends to a a screening to see it, and they'll go, no, that's pretty good. Well, I need more than that in my life than it's pretty good or it's just okay. Uh, I want to do work that is superb, that is gets people excited, that is the best that they've ever seen. And that's hard to do in a group project like making a motion picture, whereas as a painter, it's all on my shoulders. I can make If it's good, it's good because I made it that way. If it's bad, it's bad because I made it that way. I can't blame anyone else but myself. So it's, it's one of the key issues in, in making films that uh, was a sort of a stumbling block for me. Plus my art director, Robbie Howland, 
Robert was my art director on Return of the Living Dead and also and Masters of the Universe. And he passed away shortly after that. And that took a lot of the wind out of my sails. I, it was hard for me to imagine making movies without Robbie by my side. Well, you know, I'll admit, as a, even as a little kid when I watched this film, as many times as I did, I always loved the costumes. And in my head, and this is the, the honest-to-God truth, in my head as I, as I watched the film as a little kid, I remember thinking to myself, okay, well, this is how He-Man and Friends would look in the real life. You know what I mean? Like if you took these characters out of the cartoon and put them into the real world, this is how the uh, this is how the costumes and the characters would look. And nowadays, at least it seems to me, especially with these comic and cartoon based films, they're almost there's almost this conscious effort on behalf of the production team to make the characters look exactly the same as the source material. And so I feel like you know, nowadays this almost creates more problems, especially with the look and the tone of the film, but you guys, man, you guys balanced it just right to where you took, you took these characters and, you know, which was a, let's face it, toy line that was intended for children, but you guys took them and, you know, changed the costumes and, you know, molded the characters to where it's still allegiant and true to the source material, but it's updated for the real world. And I always loved that. You know, it, it's funny. Uh, Frank Langella is, is one of America's greatest actors. He's done some incredible roles in motion pictures. His favorite role of all time is Skeletor, which when I found that out, that blew me away. He <laughs> loved Skeletor. He made up a lot of Skeletor's uh, dialogue as well. He really took that role to heart and wanted to make it the best he could pos- possibly make it. Well, and with regard to Dolph Lundgren as He-Man, I have to ask you about um, about this particular costume and about this particular character. So, and I've always wondered this as a little kid. So maybe you can maybe you can help me, Mister Stout, and finally bring an answer to this one. So, with the design of He-Man's costume, the addition of the cape, I've always wondered this as a as a, as a little kid. What was your uh, thought process in uh, in putting a cape on uh, the strongest man in the world? Well, uh, initially, I brought uh, Jean Giraud, Mobius, in to help with the redesign of He-Man. And I said, the first thing is we got to get rid of the bangs. I said, he looks like a, a guy who's in an ABBA sound-alike band. <laughs> I didn't want him to look like he was from ABBA. So uh, Jean gave him that, that really cool sort of uh, swept-up hair. And then... Uh, he came up with this great idea, which sadly Mattel fought us on and, and wouldn't let us use. And that was they're in the middle of a sort of a world civil war. And he is, there's, there's every uh, man or woman who's available is a warrior. So they have nobody really building their, their armor and their gear that they need to fight. So He-Man picks up scraps of metal uh, from machines and, and other things and straps them onto his body to create body armor, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. And then uh, the, I thought the cape was important because I wanted there a contrast be tr- uh, to be between his, his very blonde hair that Dolph has and his, and his sort of a bronzed body against a blue. That, that's just that's a great color combination. And it would uh, form a sort of a silhouette every time his cape was spread. You would see that the magnificent body that Dolph had. So 
that's how that came about. Well, and then you were also tasked to design the characters and costumes for brand new characters in the film. I mean, that that's the other thing is that that's uh, so fascinating is, you know, the entire masters of the universe toy line is vast, especially mm-hmm. in terms of the villains. But for this particular film, um, Cannon and Mattel uh, basically created new characters that were going to be in the uh, in the toy line. So we had the characters of Karg, Blade, and Sarad. Did I'm curious? Did Cannon and the Mattel company did they give you parameters in these character designs, or were you completely allowed to have free reign with uh, with with their designs? Have you assembled the mercenaries? Here and awaiting your command. I have selected your finest warriors. Blade. Sarad. The Beastman. And Karg. Hmm. A curious quartet. He-Man has slipped away from me. I want him back. This must happen before moonrise. Now, you are to go through to this world where they are hiding. Find the key. Do as you wish with the others, but bring He-Man back alive. You do understand? Yes. Good. I just came up with those three characters on my own. I think they had names in the script, but that was it. So Sorod, I figured, well, obviously Sorian means lizard-like, so I'm going to make him reptilian. Blade, this guy's obviously a whiz with swords and knives. And, uh, oh, and Karg. Karg, the name didn't really suggest anything, but I said, we, we've got all these huge guys like Beastman, and, you know, and let's make Karg a little guy because each, each of those villains is, is a representative from their own world, from their own nation. For instance, uh, the Beast Man, if you, if you look at his pants, there are handprints all over his pants. So before Beast Man left his people to go fight with Skeletor, his greatest warriors put paint on their hands and touched his pants, giving him their power. So that's, that's an example of creating a little mini biography or history that the public's never going to see that or hear about that. But it makes that character real for me and hopefully real for the audience as well. Well, Mr. Stout, you have given me a reason to go back and, and watch this film for uh, number 101, actually. <laughs> so I can check that out. I had no idea. Well, I'm curious, were there any designs of yours that didn't make it in the film or that were modified extensively? Like, you know, for example, there's the characters of Trapjaw and, and Ram Man and Many Faces. Did you conceptualize any other characters or any vehicles or anything like that that uh, unfortunately didn't make it uh, to screen? I did loads of them. <laughs> There's a German uh, Masters of the Universe fan magazine that, that's beautiful. It's full color on glossy paper and gorgeous. And they contacted me recently and I did a long interview and they said, uh, can we run some of your art You know, with the interview? I said, sure. Uh, you know, How much do you want? And they said, we'll, we'll take as much as you can give us. Well, the magazine, because of that, turned into a book. And I've got over 130 of my designs in that book. 
it's it's amazing. It's all full color. I, I think the book itself is about three or four hundred pages, and you can see all the rejected designs of all the different creatures that I had done. Now, for the most part, we we kept obviously we kept uh, He-Man, Tila, Man-at-Arms, uh, Skeletor, and Beast-Man, but uh, Mattel wanted new toys for their next year's toy line, and that's where I came in and and designed the uh, Gwildor and Blade and Karg and uh, Sorod. So, and I also uh, redesigned Evil Lynn. I saw Evil Lynn as being like the the woman in Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, the former silent star who is uh, living in the past. And uh, boy, the actress we got, Meg Foster, she was fantastic as Evil Lynn. She's got the most amazing eyes too. They look like chips oh, yeah. of ice, little black dots in them. She's in, she was incredible, absolutely incredible. Yeah. Well, I know that the the film was not a massive hit upon its release in 1987, but here you are. I mean, let's face it. We're still talking about this movie 34 years later. I mean, it has to feel pretty rewarding knowing that this film turned out to be a success in a sense all all this time later, right? Well, you know, it was really weird. I followed the film's box office intently. The film got released. And it, it had a really good weekend, uh, the first weekend. Now, typically, motion pictures, the, the attendance drops off dramatically after that for the second weekend, usually by, by at least a half. And so when I checked the second weekend grosses, it's like, wait a minute. It made more money the second weekend? This is unheard of. And then I checked the third weekend, and it was making even more. I said, oh, my God, this film's got legs. This is going to be a massive, massive hit. And then Cannon pulled it from the theaters. What I didn't know was Cannon was going bankrupt at the time. They could no longer afford to advertise the film. So it, had it stayed in the theaters, it would have been a huge box office hit. Now, uh, <laughs> because the production had gone so over budget and over schedule, except for my department, uh, Cannon denied us what, are, what is, usually happens when the film is completed, which is a cast and crew screening. They wouldn't let us have one. So I paid for all the art department to come see it in the theater that it was showing at. And uh, my, my first reaction was, hey, we got a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's fantastic, because I wasn't sure we were going to have that. And then I, I kind of forgot about the film for quite a while. I got contacted by the American Cinema Tech, which is a very uh, prestigious uh, film studies uh, organization, and they said, we're going to have a screening of Masters of the Universe at the Egyptian Theater, and we would love to have you attend and do a question and answer uh, for the film. And I said, sounds great. And it'll be interesting to see what it's like with a, you know, an audience you know, many decades later. And so I think, I, I think we did the Q&A first. It was me and Chelsea Field who played Tila. We answered a whole lot of questions about the making of the film, and then they showed the film. And, boy, I tell you, I, I felt so great about the response that that film audience had. For one, the attendance, the tickets sold out in about two minutes. And so it was a packed house, and they cheered at all the right places. They laughed at all the right places. And when Dolph or He-Man at the end of the film says, I have the power, I thought the roof was going to come off that theater. The place yeah. just exploded. It was uh, unbelievable. So I, I tell you, few things are more gratifying than to see an audience response like that to one of your motion pictures. 
And the film still holds up. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to say that. I think the film oh, still holds up and is still, I mean, first of all, I mean, we can say, I think it's probably the best looking Canon film that, uh, that Canon mm -hmm. ever did. I think it's one of the ones that uh, just, I mean, if you compare it with so many of the other films that they did, I think it's the one that looks the most polished, but it is still a film that I can uh, sit back and, and watch with my little boy and have, an amazing time with. I mean, it, it is, it is, I mean, I, I love it. And I, I think I always will. And, and perhaps you could say it's nostalgia. I don't know, but uh, it still holds up. It's, it's so gratifying to hear you say that, Sean. I, I, I really appreciate it. And I think it's, it's great that you showed it, you know, to your little guy. It's yeah. So cool. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I wanted to ask you about a, another project that, uh, that that you worked on, and this is something else I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about. So in addition to Masters of the Universe shaping a, uh, a good portion of my childhood, there was another toy line and cartoon that I absolutely loved, and that was Dino Riders. And oh, yeah. I, I had no idea, but you had a hand in, in, uh, in this as well. Is that right? After years of peaceful existence on the distant planet Valoria, Questar and his people were forced into battle. The power of their stepped crystal ripped a hole in the fabric of time, sending them backward to prehistoric Earth. Unaware that at the same moment the evil Emperor Krulos was plotting to capture the stepped crystal with his own grotesque Rulon forces. And so, the battle continues in a new place in time with Dino Riders. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. Whenever I mean, that seems a, like it's right up your alley. Dinosaurs yeah. and, right? I mean. Yeah, whenever, whenever there's a TV show with dinosaurs, one of the first things the production does is they hire uh, a dinosaur expert. And uh, the dinosaur expert is to show parents' organizations, the PTA and groups like that, look, at uh, this is an educational show. We have a, a world-renowned dinosaur expert on this, so... Uh, your your child's really going to benefit from watching this show. Of course, what they don't tell him is that all the the as as I'm watching the show develop and stuff and reading the scripts and everything, I'm making notes and I send them the notes, which they all completely ignore. <laughs> they just want my name on the film to get them out of trouble with the parents groups. So, Dino Riders, I really had almost nothing to do with Dino Riders except that I was their official paleo advisor. And uh, <laughs> it was, I actually, I had more work to do on a little show called Dink the Little Dinosaur. Uh, okay. They would have what are called commercial bumpers, where when the, the cartoon story ends for 30 seconds, they show you a little short film before they go to the commercial. And I designed all the commercial bumpers for that series, so that was fun, and that was that was truly educational. I was uh, designing them in such a way that uh, kids would be learning about each of these different dinosaur species. Well, I mean, look, you, you have an extensive body of work that I think is extremely commendable and impressive. So, I mean, you should be very proud, and it's been an honor speaking with you. I, I'm curious. Out of all of the films that you've worked on and the books that you've had published and the collections that you've put together, are, 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 what, what stands out to you the most? Like your, your entire catalog of, uh, or excuse me, your entire resume, what, uh, what stands out to you the most and would you say you're the most proud of, I guess? Well, two of the best films that I was involved in, uh, 
one of them was Return of the Living Dead, and that's is more popular today than when it came out. And the other one's uh, Pan's Labyrinth. I felt so lucky to be able to work with uh, Guillermo del Toro on Pan's Labyrinth. My favorite work of everything that I do is uh, creating accurate reconstructions of prehistoric life as murals for natural history museums. My first two murals are at the Houston Museum of Natural Science in Texas. I did three for Walt Disney's Animal Kingdom in Orlando. I did 12 for the San Diego Natural History Museum and two more for the San Diego Zoo, which is right next door. That work gives me so much satisfaction. For one, it's, it's huge, it's large stuff. So I'm not just using my wrist, I'm using my whole arm to paint these paintings. And I don't do them digitally. They're oil paintings on canvas. I, I don't like visual art all that much. It seems like a lazy way to do murals. And uh, But also, the murals themselves are going to be a huge part of my artistic legacy. I know when I go to New York or Chicago, the first place I go is the Natural History Museum to see the murals by Charles R. Knight. He was the guy who visually defined dinosaurs for the rest of the world. It was his dinosaurs that were used for King Kong, his dinosaurs that were used for Disney's Rite of Spring, a phenomenal artist. So whenever I go to New York or Chicago, I make a beeline to see those murals. And I'm hoping that the public, members of the public, will have the same feeling about my murals. Uh, once my murals at the San Diego Natural History Museum were finished, my paleontological advisor used to sit sort of discreetly out of view of people and watch the way the public interacted with the murals. And she was watching this one little old lady who was looking at this big mural I'd done of, of a mammoth. And she got a little closer and looked at it and got a little closer and looked at it. And so finally she was just a few inches away from the mural, from the surface of the painting. And she shrieked and jumped back and said, oh my God, it's a real painting. <laughs> so that was really gratifying because for the most part, if you see murals now, and now they're not real paintings. They're they're produced digitally, and then they're printed on paper and just put on the wall. Whereas uh, my murals, I take pride, great pride in the fact that they're actual oil paintings on campus. Well, is there anything else that you're that you're currently working on, or or better yet, where, where else where else will you be popping up so that uh, fans can uh, connect with you and and chat with you? My other big passion is comic books. I love comic books. I haven't figured out a way to make them pay. But uh, that doesn't stop me from doing covers and stories. And so my favorite publisher, John Fleskies, uh, he is in the process of putting together a three-volume box set on all my comics work. Uh, each book will be about 350 pages. And it will. It, I'm one of those guys that saves everything. So I was going through flat files I hadn't gone through in decades and finding all kinds of stuff I'd forgotten I had. I even found the uh, the original roughs I did for the Wizards poster. So this is going to be a beautiful three-volume box set of all my comics work. Uh, it'll include all the stuff I did for Sockletoons and Cartoons, the work I did on Russ Manning's uh, Tarzan of the Apes strips, uh, the other comic book stories I've done. And so I'm really excited about that. We're just finishing up volume one now. Uh, the other thing is uh, that beautiful Masters Universe book uh, I picked up a whole bunch of those from Germany, which is where they came from, and sell those on my website. Uh, I think so far the reaction has, has been fantastic. People were amazed that I produced so much work in such a short amount of time. And it's, it's just the whole book is beautifully done. 
And then I, my most requested book is a book on all my music-related art. In the mid-1970s, I did 45 bootleg record album covers. That was a time period when you could bring a Sony tape recorder to a concert and tape the whole show. Or uh, you could get as close as you wanted to take photographs of the pop stars. That obviously doesn't happen anymore now. But back then, people would record concerts, and then they'd have one or 200 albums pressed up on vinyl, and they'd sell them on the streets of Hollywood. And so I was really uh, enthusiastic about bootleg record albums. I had just seen a great Led Zeppelin concert. I saw about five or six people taping it, so I knew there was going to be a bootleg of that show coming out. And about two weeks later, it was there in the bins at my favorite record shop in Hollywood. And I looked at it, and I said, oh, man, the band deserves better than this. Than this. this. This cover's horrible. And a guy tapped me on the shoulder. He said, you want to do bootleg record album covers? I go, uh, yeah. He says, okay, meet me at Selman Las Palmas, 8 o'clock Friday. Be alone. So that, that's a real seedy part of Hollywood. But I showed up <laughs> at 8 o'clock at night, and this uh, sedan with smoked windows pulled up in front of me. And one, the passenger window opened a crack, and a piece of paper came out. I grabbed the paper. It said, Rolling Stones Winter Tour, and then there was a whole list of songs. The voice inside said, see you in two weeks. Same time, same place. Be alone. And so I did my first bootleg record album covers for the Rolling Stones. I call it All Meat Music. And uh, two weeks later, I'm at that spot. The car drives up. The window comes down a little bit. And I push the art in like I'm mailing a letter in a mailbox. And in response, a $50 bill came out. So eventually the bootleggers got so that they could trust me and I wouldn't turn them into the FBI. And uh, we, I had a blast doing covers for the Rolling Stones, the Who, the Yardbirds, Santana, the Beatles. It was, it was really great. That's what I'm known for in the United Kingdom. They don't know my dinosaur stuff. They don't know any of that other stuff. But they know all of those covers that I did. And that's why a book on all my music-related art is my most requested book. Well, I know that uh, the um, the the German Masters of the Universe book. I have seen that, and I've been meaning to pick up a copy because, yeah, what, what I've seen of it online, I mean, it just looks absolutely beautiful. So that is something that uh, that I do need to pick up and add to my collection. Yeah, if you buy it from me, I include a translation of the interview that I did with the magazine. Oh, cool. Unless you unless you read German. <laughs> yeah, good to know. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, this has been an absolute pleasure. I mean, as an amateur illustrator myself, as well as I'm, you know, just, just a fan or a big kid at heart. Um, it truly has been an honor chatting with you. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope to see you again at a, at a convention here soon. Now that, now that those are back up and running. I hope so too. And I, I hope we all stay kids at heart. I think it's really important, really important to never forget where you came from and what excited you as a child. Thank <laughs> you.